Oh, man. I, that's what I'm going to name my son. Herman Webster Mudgett. He could go by Mudge for short. Then he would just literally hate me eternally for the rest of his life. Hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, episode 52. In this episode, we are talking about Eric Larson's The Devil in the White City, murder, magic, and madness at the fair that changed America. I am Ryan, and with me is my good buddy and fellow host, Jacob. Yes, hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, our little book club, book cult, book something or other, episode 52. I like that you got the subtitle in there as well. Normally you just sort of, normally you just opt for like, it's blah by blah. Yeah. Uh, this and time t- you really, it's very wordy, so you just like went all out on it. Well, I do that because all of his other books are really wordy. Like all of his titles are super long. Like The Naked Consumer, How Our Private Lives Become Public Commodities. Or Isaac Storm, A Man, A Time, and the Deadliest Hurricane in History. Or uh, In the you Garden think- of Beasts, Love, Terror, and an American Family in Hitler's Berlin. Or Dead Wake, The Last Crossing of the Lusitania. You think Those that the publisher pays ones. him per word count of the title? You think he gets like a bonus for God? I hope so because he's like Eric. It. Eric, Eric, if you could fit in, you know, sixteen words as your title for this book, you'll get an extra. We'll we'll, we'll throw you some extra royalty on top. Yeah, I think I would pay him a royalty if he could also come up with a clever acronym that was just like "f this book." Wow, I I gotta say this while you were saying that I wasn't listening per usual, but. Um, <laughs> I was so I literally just spitballed sixteen, and I went and counted the words, and sure enough, it's it's a sixteen word title. God, I'm so good at that. Huh? Well done. Uh, yeah. So How are you doing, Ryan? You, you, you're holding together. It's we're not quite in isolation anymore. Uh, I mean, technically, we're not locked down. But how, how you been? I hadn't seen you still since the last episode. Still, yeah. Social distancing. Um, I will say this. I had my first I had my first taste of normalcy yesterday. Oh, how so? Well, the lady and I we were out looking at apartment stuff and uh well, we decided to treat ourselves to a, a trip to the Red Lobster. Oh, excellent. Did you eat all <laughs> yeah. the Cheddar Bay biscuits? Of all, uh, absolutely. Well, that was the whole reason I went, but yeah. Okay. Of all the places to go to like break the like major quarantine normalcy test i pick red lobster for some reason i don't know that's it was a mess but yeah, yeah. biscuits are really good the 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 rest of the seafood was okay but really it was all about the biscuits anyway so no you know. that's that's always the case and you know what uh Stuart onan uh who wrote the night country wrote uh yeah. a book called the last night at the lobster uh which was the first book i ever read by him and it's really good it's about the last night of a red lobster um like before it shuts down they're closing that location which i feel is like basically every red lobster ever they're just on the cusp of closing down man i feel like that's every restaurant ever right now well I've, now I've, i feel like so many are closed down but we're gonna way off topic here hi how's everybody at home doing i think this is gonna be a pretty standard episode i i, I feel like we're kind of We've hit our stride. We know we know what we know where our money's made if yeah. we made money from we're, this. And it's from having a pretty standard episode. We're gonna tell you a little bit about the author, Eric Larson, give you a brief summary, and then I think we're just gonna get into it. This This is an interesting book, because again, 
we're kind of we're kind of veered off a little bit here. This is not a standard long form fiction. We kind of have a, uh, I mean, not kind of. It is nonfiction, but it's there's a little bit of creative liberty. I think, yeah. especially with the Mister Mudget stuff, um, <laughs> kind of weaving them together uh, through storytelling. And uh, yeah, so we'll we'll chat about that. We'll talk about some of those elements and maybe get a little bit more historical. Uh, and then of course we're going to get into our patented three tier four, if we're locking it into a, uh, or four for get ready, getting rid of it. God, I'm losing my mind. It's you are quarantine. losing your mind. Um, it's the red lobster, uh, five, <laughs> if we're locking it in an airtight room and gassing it and then selling its book parts for science and stuff. Um, and then of course we'll tell you what we've got coming up on the next episode, which the next episode will be pretty exciting too. I yeah. Think. I think the next episode will be fun. They're all exciting. I, I'm, I'm, I, I think I'm pretty, I, I'm, I'm like for brand. I'm for our brand, right? I'm pretty on brand. I think every episode's great. I recommend every episode. We're amazing and awesome. And Absolutely. Listen, so. And if you're going to listen to any of our episodes, you know that this is a book club esque podcast where we talk about a book that we have read. So if you haven't read that book and then you're listening to a podcast about it, that may not be the best idea. You might want to go read might the book, tough. come back, and then listen to us. Because kids, if you're having to do summer reading and Eric Larson just happened to land on there and uh, your teacher decided, hey, you should read about serial killers and the building of the World's Fair, uh, you're not going to get a lot of tidbits that are going to help you write your uh, term papers. So uh, go read the book, then come back and listen to our podcast. Shall we talk about Mr. Larson and uh, and his history? Let's do it. All right. Eric Larson was born January 3rd, 1954. Uh, he started out in, uh, in journalism, actually. Um, so he wrote for the Wall Street Journal um, and Time Magazine uh, after, you know, doing some other things that launched him there. Um, his stories have appeared in the New Yorker, the Atlantic monthly and Harper's, uh, to name a few. Those are obviously massive, uh, publications. Um, he has written a ton of books, which I've already mentioned. Most of them, uh, the only one of note that I did not mention, uh, is his brand new one that came out this last February of 2020, uh, called the splendid and the vile, which is, uh, about Churchill and his family, uh, and their day-to-day life during the blitz, I believe, uh, on London. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know about you. I, I find Churchill fascinating. Uh, and I really think I might actually pick that book up. I know it's kind of in vogue, like the whole, like Winston Churchill, I, yeah. I, I don't know. I guess just like the there's there is a cult of personality around all the World War Two leaders. Right. Yes. And like Churchill is kind of that one that I think, especially for us Americans, is kind of like the odd man out because we know all the bad guys. Right. We know the yep. bad guys and Stalin kind of is in that realm, too. And then we know FDR and and uh, Truman. Yep. And so Churchill's kind of that like elusive thing. And I think that's why he kind of makes the like sexy hipster like you've seen, like I think in the last what was it? few years you had a couple different like churchill biopics or at least you know yep. world war ii things that were very kind of like churchill centric i don't know man like churchill's okay i it is what it is i'm not a big like i i love world war ii but i'm not like a big i you know i'm sorry to our, our british people I, I, i'm just not like a big sort of brit yeah. <laughs> world war ii kind of like connoisseur i guess well, if you ever find yourself in London, the uh, Churchill War Rooms, uh, or War, I guess it's War Rooms, the bunker that uh, he he basically lived in uh, during some of the Blitz, um, 
really one of the coolest museums that I've ever been in. Uh, they kind of like set everything behind like plexiglass and uh, they've left a lot of the rooms kind of as they were with, uh, you know, some of his correspondence is there. It's, it's, it's really cool, but um, could be, could be a cool book to see kind of a, a day-to-day perspective of, of the war, not necessarily the, you know, leader war uh, kind of perspective that we get mostly in documentaries and stuff. Um, right. Anyway, we have basically done a summary of a brand new book that we've never read. You owe us a summary of the book we actually did read, Jacob. Was it a book or was it two books? Sort of. Well, it's bound together, so it counts as one. Plopped, sort of plopped together. Uh, the Devil in the White City's two books that are seemingly related. Uh, one about uh, the struggles and uh, process of creating the 1893 Columbian Exposition World's Fair in Chicago, and the other about a uh, a murder castle just down the street. That's it. All right. Episode done. That's it. We can go home. Episode's done. What do we got? Uh, I'll put it on the the top shelf, and uh, <laughs> it's my favorite book we've read so far, by far, because I picked it. Um, no, let, let's get into this. Let's let's talk about your your passive aggressive uh, opinion about the the fact that this is sort of a book in two parts that never quite really merge. So, yeah. So I we've I, I'm I'm struggling to think of a, a book we've read. I feel like we've read books uh, on the podcast that obviously have multiple perspectives or multiple storylines yeah like hell, uh all the light we cannot see yeah multiple storylines that kind of that interwove and we we jump back and forth and that's fine uh but they converge right yep, or, yep. or at least they they actually have sort of counterplay uh this is just two completely separate things they never really converge it's kind of just like a tangential like oh here's all this this craziness that was going behind this like huge moment in sort of uh, American history and like all the things that are kind of surrounding this. And by the way, it just so happens at the same time uh, (laughs) you had a murder castle nearby. So let's, let's just kind of have another story about Mr. Mudget. Uh, I'm not calling him H.H. Holmes. I love the name Herman Webster Mudget. It's hilarious. Um, (laughs) All right. So yeah, it was, my thought was, and again, probably my fault. I thought there was going to be, you know, I knew tangentially about kind of H.H. H. Holmes, but I thought this was I thought there was going to be a little bit more of a, of a play between the two. I yeah. thought there was going to be a little bit more of a of a connection there. And, you know, I guess that's on me for being disappointed by history as opposed to, you know, taking creative liberties for fiction. But it was a little bit, you know, when I got to the end and it was kind of just like, oh, well, it just sort of felt like two books that maybe weren't entirely substantive enough to kind of like carry you know carry it alone and there was at least enough sort of surrounding source material or background that they could conceivably be pieced together throughout this Mm -hmm. um so yeah it was i and here's the thing is i enjoyed i think both sides of the stories that were being told and I wasn't necessarily too terribly put off by the fact that we literally were just like every chapter was a was was plot back and forth. Right. It wasn't. It was like, OK, well, we have this long breadth of time here and then we'll jump away for a little bit, mm-hmm. um, which I think is actually in books that I've read that have sort of converging storylines. I think that's a really good literary device where you spend a lot of time with something, get invested, and then you kind of deprive the reader of that. So that yep. it's kind of yep. that like hanging uh 
like thing in the back of their mind that's kind of like pushing towards something so that it builds even more suspense whenever you start seeing those sort of converging threads like tying together um but in a book like this where i guess you know somebody coming into it would maybe think well yeah i don't think these stories necessarily converge then it's fine um i think it was good for kind of giving us a breath of air from each of the maybe more difficult parts of each of the stories because i will say you know, it was nice to get like, all right, cool. It's a murder castle chapter after we get like, yeah, well, they brought in some more architects and then these were some more <laughs> buildings that they were building. And and uh, well, yeah, the flowers are really. But and they definitely wanted to be better than Paris. And it's like, oh, my God. OK, I, all right. All right oh, cool. Murder castle chapter. And then when it's like, well, he he seduced another woman and then locked her in a room and gassed her and then sold her bones and stuff. And I'm like, Jesus, Christ, can I can we talk about some like buildings and sculptures and <laughs> like this Ferris wheel thing again. So I, I, I will say it, it, it was paced nicely enough to kind of break that up where it didn't feel as, as odd considering yeah. that you basically have two non-convergent stories that really have nothing to offer each other as a counterplay. It's kind of just Ooh, separate. I disagree things. with that. Oh, okay. Well, I there just, you go. Well then, well, I kind of want to. I kind of want to like chase down the, the the thread that that you were kind of tugging at, though. So okay. you you came to this book for the murder, and you got a a heavy dose of history. And which honestly, which I will say this at the end of the day, I enjoyed the the Colombian exposition side of the book more than the H H Holmes side. I'm with you there. Which 100%. I yeah that was that was the thing I came in this expecting like oh the, the riveting this inter like the whole I knew there was going to be a lot of backdrop with the fair but I thought all the H H Holmes stuff was going to be interesting yeah H H Holmes stuff kind of just got repetitive like, it was like oh he he got some other people he did another scam and he's he's doing this again and I was just like eh okay yeah. the like actual like human feet and like the I guess overcoming the obstacles that they had to come was a more compelling story to me I think in the end. Yeah, I I th- I think I I completely agree with that. So, why do you think Larson chose to to tell these these two narratives together? Because I you made the comment that they didn't play with each other, and I I do think that they they did at least for me as I was going through it. Um, but do you have any idea or do you have any feelings why he might have done that? I mean. I think uh, it's a hard sell to be or, you know, I, as as much as historical nonfiction is a is a very big um, genre in writing mm-hmm. and it's a well, you know, it's a well respected and well journaled, you know, people like reading about interesting things. Uh, the idea that you could sort of add on top of that layer while still maintaining, you know, while still maintaining the level of okay well this i'm i'm writing a historical nonfiction, but i can also kind of include this like crime murder cd thing it i think it just opens up this book to another audience and so yeah. i think i don't know if i would say and and i could be completely wrong that it was 100 percent a creative choice that it's like i really want to write these two stories and i don't want to wait and write two different books i just want to write it as one book because they're you know they happen at the same time so it's one book but I think the idea being there that, hey, this also kind of can tug my book and, and open my book up to maybe audiences that wouldn't necessarily have just been like, oh, wow, the story of the 
the Chicago World's Fair. Woohoo! Like, you know, yeah. oh, wait, there's a there's a guy that murders people in a hotel nearby? I'm in. Like, I think that, you know, whether or not it was a creative decision, I think it was definitely probably a... Definitely probably. I'm really, really sitting on the fence there. <laughs> um, I think that it had something to do with the appeal of this book for okay. audience sake. Yeah, I, I mean, that's probably... Probably not, uh, not totally off. I'm such base. a cynic, though. I don't know. I'm a cynic. But, I'm sorry. You're the writer. I'm the jerk. I actually, I kind of, I don't know that I have like a like a writerly approach to it. I mean, so the there was like an emotional effect of having these two things sort of juxtaposed against each other, right? So like okay. Burnham and company are trying to build this fair, and everything that could conceivably go wrong, like continues to go wrong. Right. And right. so, um, as things are getting closer to the opening day and things continue to be, um, you know, basically insurmountable in, in the amount of work that is going on and the setbacks that are occurring, um, you have this, this, simultaneous building. Um, and I, I don't know if the timelines exactly match. I, I didn't, read that closely but the way that he built up the home story they were sort of in lockstep where your your homes is getting uh more brazen um more violent uh and and his literally the bodies are mounting um as the fair is about to transpire and for me there is this emotional effect that um Holmes is somehow going to be another like interruption to this, you know, getting started. And I had an emotional reaction as I'm reading this, not knowing the history, you know, of, of HH Holmes at all thinking, Oh shit, like this is going to derail something, you know, with the fair, it's going to, you know, cause bad publicity. People aren't going to show up, you know, I, I don't know. And so just being, completely ignorant of, of both real storylines, I had no idea what to expect. And I, and I think, you know, maybe that's, that's, I, I wouldn't anticipate that that was uh, an intentional decision to kind of build those two things up in tandem to a point where then by the time the fair happens and things are happy, uh, then it was, that's when to me, it was kind of like, but why, why are we doing this? Um, right. Same thing with like, uh, like I, I could see uh, completely replacing the Holmes story with Pendergast and maybe it's an absence of information about him because, you know, he obviously his crime was was terrible killing the mayor, um, but it wasn't as prolific and, and as well covered. So therefore, the source material wasn't there for Larson to, you know, kind of build that up. Um, and use that as the foil to to this whole fair, um, which did have a very clear tie to you know the last day and kind of taking all the all the air out of out of that um, you know closing ceremony for for mayors. Um, but I, d- I did think that there was uh, an intentional um, attempt to build emotions and, and concern for the fair through through Holmes. Um, but I do agree that they they never really fully came together uh, for me in the sense of like subject matter. I think you could also um, make the argument that um, you know the fair sort of introduced 
uh, all these new technologies, right? Um, and yeah, that was some of the most that was some of the most interesting. Like I uh, just historical tidbits that I didn't like with the the Pledge of Allegiance and the Ferris wheel and. Uh, yeah, there were a few others. Twain, but like Twain all... going, but then being sick for eleven days or whatever, and never actually going yeah. to the fair. Um, but but so there you was, have there, that was some of the more interesting, like little tidbits that I got. Right, and and so you have all of that. Um, you know, all of these new technologies, these you know important people in sort of the lore of American history, all converged. Um, you know, at this one time in this one place, and you know connections were made that, you know, will forever change technology and history. Um, and so it, it, the fair in and of itself brought in, you know, this, this advent of, of those things at the same time, Holmes, um, his murder spree also, you know, brought to, to light, uh, serial killers. And, uh, I mean, God, man, I mean, we could sit here and probably name a dozen serial killers in American history off the top of our heads now. You know, it's something that since the the turn of the century is something that is widely known, right? And we know that that these people um, are are operating. Um, and pun intended, I suppose. Um, mm. So, you know, I, th- I think the stories do kind of converge there. That you know, at the turn of the century, these these two things that really define um, the rest of the of the next century in technology and unfortunately murder, two world wars. Uh, you know, serial killers, mass shootings, uh, you know, all these things. Um, it, it did, it did feel like it kind of came together thematically in that way for me. No, that's no, that's totally fair. I, I do agree in a sense that you kind of have the the same sort of trajectory with each of these stories, and and that gives it a little bit of kind of a, I don't know, more of a concurrent thing, and less that they have to necessarily play off of each other. I just, again, and this is. I guess a fault for my reading, but I don't know. My expectations were I came in thinking that there was going to be a lot more. Uh, I don't know. It, everything about it seemed like it was going to be more interwoven. And so it, it would be hard to say I wasn't a little disappointed in that. But at the end of the day, I still enjoyed the product that we got out of this. Or I at least still enjoyed each separate story's offerings to this book enough. So you enjoyed the the actual fair stuff over the home stuff. Mm-hmm. Did you go into the book? Were you were you like me? Were you more excited going into the book thinking about sort of the murder stuff and less mm-hmm. really interested in kind of okay? Yeah. So I, I I figured that it the I didn't know that the book was was going to be bifurcated at all. Um. So I thought that it was going to really just be like what he did like his whole murder spree i didn't know that there was anything else to it because i like right you didn't know you weren't expecting sort of you weren't expecting like burnham and basically all of the all of the actual nuts and bolts behind the the creation of the white city yep was not so my next super serious question then going into this you had so we knew murder castle was on the table yes were you did you in your mind how how did you feel the actual product of the murder castle in this book versus what you may have been thinking going in because i got to say i was given the time period that this happened i was pleasantly surprised and impressed i will say that that's the one takeaway i was pleasantly surprised and imple- impressed with this murder castle yeah i mean it's it's sort of like uh you know, when you're a kid and like you just like 
draw like maybe weird inventions or something like a you know robot that uh that toasts your bread and and spreads you know peanut butter and jelly on it because you want a toasted peanut butter and jelly sandwich making robot um it kind of it kind of felt like like one of those sort of creations right and it, it seemed haphazard from the way that it was described obviously we don't have you know pictures of it or anything like that at least i i didn't i didn't look on the internet um but i'm assuming since it burned down that you know there there weren't any uh you know diagrams of it doesn't sound like the kind of guy that would take blueprints and uh store them for posterity um or potential prosecution later i suppose um but yeah the the murder castle did surprise me I, i kind of figured like he would just have like a you know, a little chamber, kind of like the vault where, you know, he just like drag people off that were staying there and, and do whatever he was going to do. Um, but yeah, all the gas valves and like the fact that, you know, he, the hidden shoots, the shoots, the, like, the pits the, of uh, lime and yeah, the, the, uh, crematorium, like all it's just clearly this guy had a plan and I f- found myself wondering like, how much experience did he bring to the murder castle? Like we obviously knew that he had some some sort of uh, you know murderous activity well before that. But to know everything that he knew, like he needed some practice before he built that building, right? I mean, he had to. Like the like granted, I know, you know, it's oh, it's in the 1890s, so it's not like there's these measures in place that are going to be terribly difficult for him to, you know, obfuscate people going missing. I mean, it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, you call her, right? Like now it's like, oh, well, you know, Jane is missing. Oh, well, where's her phone? Let's let's ping some cell towers. Beep, 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 beep. Oh, she was at your house, Mr. Mudget. <laughs> Where is she? like, you know, it's oh, well, she went to California. What are they going to do? Like, you know, so but yeah. beyond just the idea of like procuring victims. Yeah, just the the immense amount of specificity and just like he knew exactly, I guess how to get the things done that he wanted to get done. And you don't just like pick that up, right? You don't just right. like, Oh, you know, Hey guys, I'm, I'm thinking about starting a murder castle. Should I, you know, I'm just spitballing some ideas here. Like what if I had a completely, you know, like airtight chamber and I just locked people. I don't know why this is what I'm talking like now, but hey, I just lock them in like a chamber and then they just can't breathe. And then I sell off their organs to the black market and their skeletons to hospitals. I mean, like, you know, that sounds like that could work, right? I I think I'd read somewhere because I did do some like tangential background reading on Holmes that it's like, you know, he's tried and true convicted for uh, nine or he had been convicted for nine killings, basically assumed or he had at least admitted to 27. And then there's that kind of gray area where they're like, yeah, we think that he might have done like 100. Right. Right. So I just I I don't know. I, I, 100 is crazy because the dude, if you think about it, you were, how old are you? 34 now, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the dude is your age, and he managed to right. squeeze in like 100 murders. So I, I can't imagine. I, I had to imagine that he was just a a strange young boy out just murdering people probably. And Right. And, just, and the thing just, that I found most fascinating about that whole thing was that I think coming into it, I expected that it was going to be, you know, kind of 
Jack the Ripper, you know, kind of grab somebody in a dark alley or, you know, a person of, you know, or a right. That it was going to be repeat. very, yeah. yeah, just like, oh, he does it, but not, you know, but, like it's not as meticulous. Right. But the so many of these people were people that were close to him and at least the ones that we know about. Right. Sure. Spouses, friends, people that he had uh, employees, you know, people that he knew. I mean, that's that's the wild part to me about all of this is that not only is it brazen just to do it like in a building full of people that sounded like a bustling place, but then to to do it to people that other people are going to be looking for that know that they were with you and to have to like come up with the, all of these stories uh, and maintain those things, which it sounds like you didn't do a very good job of uh, even in the short term. I mean, it's just you're asking for it like. I would think serial killer 101 is like, don't do people that are close to you because then somebody might come ask. Yeah, I think I'd read I'd read somewhere again. This was kind of in side reading that it was there was a period of time where he was away while this was still kind of taking place. And okay. the Chicago police had come in there to just sort of like poke around and all this. And they kind of found like trap doors and like all these other things. And they found some of the stuff. Uh, but he wasn't prosecuted yet, or at least that was kind yeah. of like still still undergoing all these things. And that's it's crazy to me that and again, I guess again, limitations of the time, but you know, police are like, Hey, Mr. Holmes, you know that girl, <laughs> your wife that she's missing? Well you know that you said went out to California or whatever, you know, she's gone. <laughs> It's crazy, man. Have you looked in like all your trap door hallways and your gas chamber, man? Maybe she like got stuck in there one day. I don't know. Why well, you sound it's like just, Larry the Cable Guy? It's Chicago, bro. I still have. Well, it was Chicago, eighteen nineties Chicago. They yeah. could have sounded like that. Uh, yeah, they didn't have like Windy City. They didn't have like Midwestern. That's true. You know, yeah. Chicago accents. Yeah, they, they probably still have. I don't know, I don't know why I did a Boston British. accent. I don't know. It, it's not too dissimilar. You get that kind of like nasally kind of sound. It's, That's just the Midwest in general. I mean, you know, it is. That, but I, I've been so, out of the Midwest for a little bit too long. I'm, I'm not as I'm not as good with my Midwest uh, vocal impression. Yeah, I'm, I'm not either, even though I grew up in Wisconsin. But um, have you ever been to Chicago? Yeah, I've been to Chicago lots. Have have you have you been to the the old fairgrounds at all? I didn't realize that I had been there until uh, until after I'd finished the book and I was doing some research about the current state of things. I don't believe. Uh, basically, the times that I've been in Chicago have been almost strictly like downtown, uh, like okay. around like Michigan Avenue area, like or you know over seeing the like field museums and staying downtown or staying by the what is it Navy Pier. Yeah. Yep. Uh, staying like right by the lake and stuff like that. I've been very much like I've every time I've gone into Chicago, it's been only for a few days, but I've gone there a lot. But it's mostly just that like immediate downtown area. I go see like Sears, like the Willis Tower. I don't know. I was going to say Sears Tower. It is the Sears Tower, but Willis Tower, whatever. Yep. Just touristy shit, you know? Yeah. It's it's funny to me because, you know, you, you visit so many places, right? Or at least I, I've been to a lot of different places and it kind of escaped me you know, that that had even occurred there. And uh, and like obviously having been there, I, as I recall, it was a field trip that we went to the um, was the machinery museum or whatever it's called now um, that they converted one of the buildings to. It's um, and 
it's it's just funny like you don't always know the history of the places you know that you've been and i mean i don't remember being uh awestruck at the time you know seeing the building and but then i saw pictures of it i'm like god how do i not like how did this not make an impression because i saw the picture and i immediately remembered the place but it just it seems like the the kind of building that you know really would would leave an impression and I was kind of struck then as, as I kept doing research to, you know, look for pictures and, uh, you know, any video or anything, um, to see what this actually looked like. I don't think that Larson did a great job of describing the architectural like features. I feel like that was a bit glossed over for me because the impressions that I got after looking at those were not what I had in my mind's eye. Um, I got the general, like, sort of layout and there were a couple, you know, pictures in my copy of the book anyway. Uh, but the gravity of the entire scene didn't grip me at any point in this book. Did, did you feel that way? Like, like he adequately described the, the fair. Um, I mean, I think the scope and the scale was really well done, but yeah, as far as like the specifics of the architecture, not really, which is odd considering that it was like such a, prominent i guess feature in kind of the story to be told we're seeing it from kind of the background of this architect and all of these sort of marvels that are being developed there i think spray paint was another thing that they developed there during that time too but yeah it was a little bit i it was interesting i mean you know on my copy of the book it kind of has the bits on the front but i i did go and look uh at like some of the stuff just older photos of it of the fairgrounds but I agree. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that was a little bit lacking in that department. I, I I'd never really felt like visually connected to the actual you know structures at the fair, despite the fact that they were kind of the the whole I don't know like moving force behind this whole half of the book. Yeah, which is which is really strange to me because there are a lot of times where Larson is really vivid with his descriptions of things. Um, but they're they always seemed atmospheric to me. They were never um, they were never specific, and I think think part of that is is probably um, the fact that this is like hard boiled like historical nonfiction, and you know if he doesn't possess the information to like rebuild those things, he's sort of forced to to stick to those sort of more general descriptions. Um, yeah. But I, I was surprised given the amount of research that he did um, and clearly his command of just the narratives and, and all of that, that we didn't get a bit more of a vivid description. Um, and maybe it was just because it was everything was so in flux, you know, throughout the book, everything still being built, that there was never really that moment to kind of step back and describe the scene. Um, but I was I was kind of disappointed then for readers that don't go outside and go look for photos because man, that place is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, I, as I'm like tangentially, like pulling up some of the photos to look at again, man, I gotta say, imagine uh, just put yourself in the mindset of a fair goer, right? Or let's say you're going to the Texas state fair. Okay. I I use that because we've both been to the Texas state fair. It's great. We love the Texas state fair. Imagine you roll up 
first time ever at the Texas State Fair. And, you know, we have the giant Ferris wheel at, at the Texas State Fair. Imagine you've never seen one of those in your life. It's the first one ever. Are you getting on that thing? Man, I barely get on it having seen them all my life. Uh, oh, I, my God. Especially, yeah. like, I can't, you know, as impressive a feat as it is, man, I there was not an ounce of anything inside me that if I were just plopped down – in 1893 at this place that I would ever want to get on a freaking Ferris wheel. That thing looks terrifying. Yeah, I, I would have been the guy, you know, bashing his head to, to get out of there probably. I mean, I'm, I'm terrified of heights, so that would, uh, that would, it would have been hard to get me on there. But also when you're on, a, when you're getting on a Ferris wheel, it feels totally different when you, you know, walk onto the, the car from the platform than you know when you're say a quarter of the way up and you realize just what you've gotten yourself into there's no way there's no way if i never see it, if i if this is the first ever ferris wheel that has ever existed i'm probably just gonna be like you know what guys i'll get the second one what they can work out the kinks with this one you know what not even the second one fifth one i'll, I'll that's <laughs> when i'll take a look when i know that they've gone through some iterations and they're playing they're playing pretty loose and fast especially when it's like oh yeah this whole thing was behind schedule by the way so they're just throwing yeah. stuff up you know they're just you know it's totally safe but safe then was god you know hey well, uh <laughs> but but in retrospect i mean it it took a what dynamite uh to blow it up um before it, it collapsed when it was being retired so yeah. i mean turned out to be pretty damn reliable in in the scheme of things and i think he mentioned um or i read outside that uh that it was the first version like it, he was completely building it like as it went there was no you know test of this there was no 1.0 this was 1.0 cross cross our fingers and hope that nobody dies yeah so I did find a couple cool uh, things as I was looking for um, for things because you know we both have the Oculus Rift and uh, I thought before I knew you know what happened um, at the end of the book and and the buildings burning down I was like after this is over I'm plugging it in and I'm gonna go see if they have like a a thing on there and of course you know a lot of the buildings are gone but I found that like in I think it was 2005 um, UCLA did a uh, a 3D like recreation of um of the fair um I don't know how they did it um and it's just it, it's just sort of a, a YouTube video and I can put it on our our uh, Twitter account at Better Bookshelf um this week so you you guys can check that out if you're interested uh but it does kind of do this sort of zoom through of uh of you know the the fairgrounds um doesn't go inside many buildings but it does go in through a few, but that was the first time that I got a, the the sense of scale for some of these things, and it's it's astounding, yeah. absolutely astounding. Um, I, I can't think of another thing in human history in in modern time, and I just I could be just having a total lapse of judgment where where we've where we've thrown together something like this in a few years where it is this extravagant are we done with those things as as a society like i know that we like scramble to to get like the olympics set up and maybe that's the that's the modern you know version of this is the you know every time we have an olympic somewhere you know they build 14 stadiums that get used for a month and then never played in again and all of that kind of stuff but 
even even this seems to be on a scale that the Olympics don't even approach. Yeah, I can't think of any like major undertaking to that scale for such a for for something so short lived too, right? Like, I mean, you see impressive feats in like, uh, for example, sports stadiums, right? Some of those mm-hmm. are incredibly well designed and uh, and seemingly put up incredibly quickly as well for the the scope that they they are. But those are things that it's like, okay, this is planned out for you know. 15, 20 years of use that we're supposed to be using and multi-purpose. And this right. was, hey, you know, we're just doing, it's just for, uh, you know, it's an exposition. We're Six literally months. just do, we're literally just doing it because it's kind of like a dick measuring contest with France. I mean, honestly, <laughs> let's, I think, I think the problem is, you know, we've kind of like asserted ourselves uh, internationally and we don't really exist to have those, uh, you know, all hands on deck sort of, you know, peen, peen offs anymore. Yeah. Cause I think at the, at the heart of it, every great achievement in human history has been done to just like rub it in some other group's face. Basically. It's like, we got to the moon first idiots. We're the best. Or, you know, we put this amazing, massive, you know, scope of scale together because, you know, suck it, France. Right. I, I don't know. It's, I, I think that, it's just, I don't know. I, I, I think you see it in very differing ways now. There's not this, like, large-scale mobilization of, like, we have to beat or we have to be better than this or we have something outside of, I guess, the the biggest comparable, like you said, is the Olympics. But even still, the scope of that is so small. Right. It feels. Yeah. Maybe not, not not small in a sense of the overall, like, amount of stuff that, that's being done, but... You know, when you build a a stadium for the Olympics, you're not building it with all this like, you know, you're not having people, you're not having teams of granite carvers in, right? And you're not having to bring in 15 architects. Or maybe they do. I don't know. But it it seems like it's more just sort of like, hey, it's a practical space that we just kind of clear everything to make use of it versus this being so ornate and so planned and so just, I don't know expansive yeah and then i mean think about they barely touched on some of the coordination that it took to get like exhibits and things there i mean you know we got plenty of the landscape uh architecture and and plenty of the the building architecture but we barely got anything about you know how they how they built you know all these exhibits how did who coordinated you know, all of these different countries to come and participate and, you know, cordon off areas. And I mean, again, there's there's a, a ton of stuff out on the Internet with drawings and, you know, some photographs. Uh, there was actually a, a documentary on a YouTube channel called Great Documentaries called Expo uh, Magic of the White City, narrated by Gene Wilder. Uh, oh, OK. Who is That's freaking greatness. Yeah. hundred uh, percent. I, I love I love his voice, man. And uh, so he's, you know, kind of going through it's it's a two hour documentary, um, you know, on on the World's Fair. And I've watched uh, probably 30 minutes of it, but there's just some cool, cool stuff in there. And I just uh, this the immense scale of everything else that went into the fair really struck me as as I was watching some of that, that it really seems like an insurmountable task and, and something that I just can't imagine us doing again in in human history on that on that scale right like if we took it 
to the absolute technological limits of our current age. Sure. I don't even, what would a world's fair look like? What today? would that look like? Yeah, that's the craziest thing too. When was I? I'm curious about this because I knew that the world's fair was something or expositions or whatever it was at that time. But when did we know. stop doing that? I don't know. We should well, uh, prob- probably probably well not probably during the World Wars because we had one in there was one in 1934 that I remember. I think in Chicago yeah. again. Maybe post World War II. I don't remember. Of course, there probably might have been one in the 50s. I don't know. Not as I, informed on this subject, but there yeah, weren't any I, since I've been alive, and I feel gypped. So, like, would would you go? Like, would you go out of your way if, uh, if say, there was a a London World's Fair that was going to be uh, same scale as this? I don't know, simply because I imagine that, like, I would go if it was something that I wouldn't have to I don't know I imagine just the the scope of like travel and lodging in somewhere where I can't like readily immediately access it or leave would be probably no but if it was anywhere in the continental US absolutely okay I would make a point to go yeah, I've I've always kind of felt that way. I felt that spoken way. Spoken by a man. Like, spoken by a man, though. Again, take that with a grain of salt. Spoken by someone who's never been out of the country. So you know, whatever. <laughs> I am but a simple travel pleb. Yeah, that's that's fair. Uh, I think you know I would love to go to the Olympics someday. I feel like that's probably the closest that we could sure. get this this day and age. But well, mean, we had the winner. You know what? I'd even do Canada. I'd do Canada. I'd do Canada. Because there yeah. was, I you know, we had the Winter Olympics in Canada. What was that, Vancouver 2012 or something? Uh, Yeah, something, something like that. Yeah, that might have been fun if I were, you know, not 24 at the time and had no means of making that happen. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's funny, like, the, the footprint that that kind of leaves. So, like, I've actually been to um, Vancouver a couple times, and they built for like all the skiing stuff, basically a whole like ski area in Whistler Blackcomb, which is roughly about an hour north of, of Vancouver. And it's hands down one of the most beautiful places I've, I've ever been. Um, and 2010 that, Olympics, by the way, 12, 2010 is summer, 12, was, okay. 12 was Beijing, I think. Right. I don't, I, don't know. I can never keep them straight, man. 2010. Uh, so even worse, I was 22. So yeah, that wasn't happening. Okay. So, you know, the, the Olympics are, you know, notorious for just like building stuff like Sochi, right? Uh or Brazil, um uh-huh. you know, they they build all these great these great structures and some of them ha- might have sort of, you know, post Olympic plans, but then it all, you know, caves caves in and nobody does anything, it falls into disrepair and whatever. But I will say Canada did a good job especially with that ski area that they basically like built out um for for the Olympics of keeping that going and it's a fantastic place to visit. And I wish that I could go visit the the World's Fair in in Chicago and, you know, see all these buildings. It's it's really a tragedy that they didn't survive. But yeah, it also sounds like that was never the intent to begin with. Yeah. Just like Icarus fly too close to the sun. Let's get into ratings. All right. Top shelf, middle shelf, bottom shelf donate for each of the sections and for the book as whole. Because, again, we've had we've had sort of multiple storyline books before but this is the the first one that i genuinely think it's we have such a they're so opposite that i think that we can kind of rate each segment independently even though i will agree with you earlier that there is a little bit more of a thread there than probably previously thought about by me so it's my book i'll go first um 
for the World's Fair stuff, I'm going to put that on the top shelf. I really enjoyed that. For the uh, Mr. Mudget stuff, I'll put that on the bottom shelf. So we'll have a nice round evening out between the two of them, and I'll put the book as a whole on my middle shelf. I enjoyed it. Uh, I can definitely think of some people that I would recommend to. I'm definitely not a universal recommendation, um, but definitely a recommendation to some people under the uh, newfound information that, hey, it's not this like just about a murder castle, but there is one in there if that's what you want to read about. So middle shelf. I think it was a good book. Okay. Um, I think the World's Fair was top shelf. I think that the home stuff was top shelf. I think the book is top shelf. Um, yeah, wow. I okay. think so. I, th- I think that you have to you have to kind of step back and and also realize the genre that Larson is writing in is extraordinarily restrictive. Um, while sure. he can recreate certain elements of things, those have to be true to the the day and age. They have to be true to the people that um, he's talking about um, the locations and all of that kind of stuff. And I don't know um, if you flip through, you know, any of his research or um, his uh, his comment at the at the end about, you know, his his work going into this. I, th- I think that the the things that I wanted more from in the book, certainly the home stuff are just things that Larson mm-hmm. couldn't give us and stay within the genre of historical nonfiction. I think that he deserves a lot of credit for drawing out from source material, um, you know, primary source material, as well as, you know, all the secondary stuff, the true facts and ignoring, you know, any sort of, um, any sort of hype or hyperbole, um, or, you know, we know that there was also just misinformation um, and sensationalization that was going on in in the media. So that, that, to me, takes an extraordinary amount of work to be able to navigate those things and to come up with, with a work that is historically respectable, but also entertaining to read. And while I wish that there was more and I wish that the, like we've said, the interplay between the storylines had some sort of, you know, crossover um between its narrative that was not the reality of history. And I think Larson operated really well within those constraints. So to me, it's fantastic. Definitely worth the national book award um, that it earned. And I'm honestly, I never been a huge fan of historical nonfiction because of those constraints, but I'm going to read some more Larson. Absolutely. Absolutely. Probably everything he's, he's written to this point. Well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, I guess we kind of did ourselves a disservice. We mostly focused on the actual content of the book and never really got to talk a lot about uh, Larson as a writer. Yeah. Um, But I I will agree in that sense that I think given the spectrum, the genre that he he was writing, and I I thought he did an excellent job because a lot of times nonfiction, it can be a slog, especially something like this where you have – Again, all the limitations and you have sort of the especially the the actual fair storyline itself. Yeah. I think uh what was the what was the book we read for the the World War One truce where it was there was oh, just a silent lot of night. just dense, silent night, yeah. yeah. A lot of like dense information and it's just a real slog to read through. Not at all in this book. Yeah. Very masterfully done, very masterfully composed. Um 
in a way that was absolutely uh, very natural to just roll with it and just get everything in there and, and, and rock with it. Yeah. So I a hundred percent agree with you on that. Like I absolutely am open, especially for the podcast with uh, reading some more by Larson in the future. Yeah, for sure. But I think you make a really good point that it's not for everybody. And I think that, you know, absolutely I think not. me 10 years ago probably wouldn't, would have put this book down just because the fair stuff didn't interest me. And I don't know what it is about, getting a little bit older where like history becomes just old more interesting. Yeah. But it's yeah. definitely because you're becoming more of a part of history. When you think yeah. about it now, his history is history is everything like 33 years or further <laughs> in the past. So now you were technically officially part of history, Ryan. So you're becoming more into, that's why it's middle shelf for me. I'm, I'm getting there soon. I'm going to be a part of history. That's fair. Uh, but you're already there. Old well, man, so that's probably what it speaking is. Speaking of, speaking of history, um, we're going to read a, we're going to read a book that its title is technically in the past, but I think that the subject matter is kind of always present. So we're going to reach back into the into the vault of, you know, modern classics and we're going to whip out George Orwell's dystopian novel 1984. And the reason does 1949 count as modern classic? Uh I mean, that's modern like era. Seventy plus years I, I, anything, old. Anything, anything, nineteen twenties, twentieth century, twentieth century. Plus, I'm gonna qualify as as modern, but um, yeah. So I got to thinking about this one because there's been all these discussions around like COVID lately on um, like surveillance, right? So there were some news stories about uh, using uh, drones here in the in the United States to like take people's temperatures, right? Just like walking around in public spaces or whatever. We've talked about like the TSA installing um, thermal cameras to try to identify people traveling through airports that might have a fever. China has taken um, some steps in, uh, in that direction. Uh, there's been news this last week about the Senate and, you know, uh, the FBI's rights to get people's like internet search history without a warrant. And, uh, you know, we're just in this day, day and age where we're creating all of this data. And, you know, a lot of times in the for the reason of safety, um, we're giving people access to that information. And the ever present fear is that it's going to be used to, you know, wield uh, power over us at some point. So um, I haven't read this book since high school, and I feel like it's time to revisit it. Have you read this before? I I've never read 18 or 18, 1894. We're still, in the, we're still about the, the world's fair. No, I've never read. You're shitting me. Really? Never. Wow. Read. It's, it's always been on that. It's always been on like the, the short long list and it keeps just getting bumped back by other books. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm even but, more uh, excited now um, because I, we, I get your fresh perspective on how this is, uh, how this is going to read for you having never read it before. And then I get to reach back to, whatever 15 year old me and see if I can remember what this is about and apply it to life as I know it as a pseudo adult. I guess I'm just a regular adult now. I mean, you're part of history now. So <laughs> allegedly you're, you're more than just allegedly. a regular, I'm pretty sure it's like 33 and 363 <laughs> days plus. And then, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, it's, it's like I said, there's, it's this like collection of books, um, that are all kind of like 
I know the jungle's another one of them that I haven't read that's kind of in the same yeah. vein of like I need to read that's it. A slog, uh I've actually never read I don't think I've read Fahrenheit four fifty one either. Uh man, I we feel, should do that I one feel, at some point. I feel too. like I'm Yeah, I feel like I'm kind of like I'm gonna lose a lot of respect from our from our no, listeners but, right now. Because there are there's there's so much like I guess like core, like what would be considered like core fiction like 20th century literature that i haven't really ever gotten around to they're I, like i have the books yeah they're waiting i mean look they're... i i put myself out there as somebody who has a degree in creative writing and a minor in in literature i i put out that whole series of uh of book suggestions based on books that i'm embarrassed to say that i haven't read so i mean fahrenheit 451 right. is another great example i have read that one but i would reread that one in a in a heartbeat and definitely a worthy read. Yeah. That's fair. The Stranger was another one, but we got that. We checked that bad boy off the list. Yeah, we we did we did check that box. So, next episode will be George Orwell's 1984, and I'm assuming you do not have a book after this. And then the episode after is going to be Upton Sinclair's The Jungle cuz I just said it. No. <laughs> um, we're just getting all the books off my list. We're just getting all of them off the list. Uh, it might be up to Sinclair's the Jungle. I don't know. I I was thinking about that book. No, I don't know. Okay. Um, I don't know yet. It it would be hilarious if we read the Jungle because it's about Chicago, basically. It is. The, uh, you it, know, meat industry. I gotta and, tell you, like, I did not like that book. And it, and again, I I haven't read okay. it since. That we're definitely high school, not gonna read but it. I did yeah. not appreciate that book. It's also kind of. We're gonna read. We're gonna read Stephanie Meyer's Twilight. And this was my That's last episode of Better Than Bunch. No, I'm saving it. <laughs> hey, you joke. I'm saving that. I'm saving that for my uh, whatever my Halloween episode is this year. Not kidding. Not no, a joke. Please don't. Please, please don't do this. Please don't do this to me again. No, no book yet, but we've got 1984. That's going to be exciting. And then uh, sometime before the next episode, I'll know and I'll let you know. And if you want to put it up on the Twitters, which you can plug right now. Yeah. If uh, If you're on the Twitter... Hit us up at Better Bookshelf if you want to talk books or make suggestions or just yell into the void. Hit us up at Better Bookshelf. Thank you for listening to this episode, and until next time.